Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. So I, I want us to think, I want you to have this phrase in your mind that the gospel is the great equalizer. It equalizes us no matter what type of background we come from, no matter our heritage, we come to Christ, all of us, equally needy, equally in need of his sovereign grace. None of us have anything to commend ourselves to God. And then the gospel also should equalize the way we interact, not just the way we come to God, but the way that we interact with one another. So um, we've got some work to do, and we're going to have three folks be baptized this morning as an expression of their trust in Christ to an onlooking world. And so let me get to it. Let me read verses 21 through 31, and then we'll work our way back through it. Paul concludes this great section by saying this, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Verse 31 concludes, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us, and then we'll stare at this text. Father, thank you for your grace to us in Christ and for your word and the truths that are so beautiful in it. We need your help to understand it and see it and apply it and believe it. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning that our hearts would be warmed, that we would be humbled, that our affections would be stirred for the beauty of the risen King Jesus. I pray for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ that by your sovereign grace you might give them the very thing that you require of them, that you would give the gift of saving faith so that they can see Jesus, believe in him, put the hope of their life in him, and be saved. Lord, I pray that you would do this all for the glory of your name, for your namesake, and for the good of your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think there's three truths to apply as as we will unfold through this short passage. The first is, and we're going to work back through it, the first is, I think it's very clear, is that the gospel, and we're going to explain what the gospel is as we work through, if you're here for the first time, the gospel excludes pride. The gospel nullifies it, smashes boasting. Look again at verses 27 and 28. Paul says, Then what becomes of our boasting? So let's do a little context here. Again, we're not just parachuting down into Romans 3, verse 27. We have been for the past few weeks and months building along with Paul this argument that he's been making in Romans 1, 2, and 3 that all humanity... 
whether it is the Gentiles who did not have God's specific revelation given through his word, but had his general revelation, had the, the universe and creation which they should have been able to see that there is clearly a creator and it should have pushed them to acknowledge God, they suppressed that truth or whether it was God's people in the Old Testament, the Jews who were given the specific revelation of God through the law and the word of the prophets that is now our Old Testament, all people, even the Jews failed. So Paul has made this argument, and we have said it time and time again, that all people stand equally guilty equally fallen, equal in need of God before him. All peoples, Jew, Gentile, every culture, every nation that comes from them, all people, all people in this room are born by nature, accountable to God because we all, by our nature and by our actions that have followed our nature, have suppressed the truth. And that puts us at enmity with a holy God. And Paul then says, he's concluding all of this argument after he goes through the gospel in verses 21 through 26, and the good news of the gospel is, is that now people who are completely helpless before this holy God, God has been so kind and gracious to put forward his son Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, to bear God's punishment on his people. So Jesus is the eternal son of God who becomes fully man. He's 100% God and 100% man. And because he is who he is, he is able to bear the weight of the punishment that should have been ours. And he does that willingly on the cross, completely obeys God where all of us have disobeyed him. He lays down his life on the cross absorbs God's punishment against his people and then victoriously rises again in victory over sin, death, and the grave. And then and it gets even better. God in his sovereign grace has given faith to his people. He actually moves on dead hearts those that in eternity past he has determined to save, he comes and moves on those dead hearts and he does a spiritual heart transplant and he takes the dead heart of a sinner and he gives a new heart and that new heart now has embedded in it faith by which that person who was dead and is now alive can believe and see and trust in the son that the father put forward to take care of the problem that humanity had with the holy God. That man, it never gets old. That's what Paul has ended on in Romans 3, verses 21 through 26. And so then he transitions now to make some application to our hearts. And he says, so then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, who among us, whether Jew or Gentile or from any culture, can stand and say, I deserve this? or I did this. The gospel is this great equalizer of mankind. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read a little bit of scripture here just to, just to stir our hearts afresh and again with some more truth from God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
Starting in verse 26, Paul writes to this church, and I love the letter of 1 Corinthians because it is a letter written to a church that was an absolute train wreck. Like he spends basically 15 chapters telling them how crazy sinful they are, but yet he starts off in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 just talking about how much he loves them and the church is a complete mess, but yet God is at work in them. I, I, I actually... I find that really encouraging because, um, well, Crosspoint, we're, we're kind of a complete mess, and you're part of it, and I'm part of it, but yet, but yet God is still at work in us. That, that's encouraging, and this is what he says. Um, you, guys, you guys are a complete mess. You know that, right? <laughs> All right, okay, and so am I. I'm the captain of the mess. Ugh. We, we not, I mean, it's funny, but we're a mess. I mean, we're a mess, and God works with his people nonetheless. And listen to what he says to this messy church. For consider your calling, brothers, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, verse 27, chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, verse 29, conjunction, so that why no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The fact that you are here right now is not because of any spiritual intelligence that you have or any strength that you brought to the table. It's because of him, because of his sovereign grace, because of his mercy in your life through no merit of your own. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, Christian who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In other words, you were, you were made to brag. You were built to brag. You were built to boast, just not in yourself, in God and his glory. And that's the whole point of what we talked about last week, how he did all of this to show, to demonstrate God's righteousness in us. Yet we, we by nature still, even if this has happened to us, even if we are born again, regenerated, new creatures in Christ Jesus, we all still struggle with this vestige of the pride that remains in us. And because we all, to some degree, suffer with the universal disease of gospel amnesia, we struggle with pride, don't we? Listen to what C.S. Lewis uh, the wonderful British thinker in the mid-1900s and author said in his book, Mere Christianity, in his chapter on pride that he calls the great sin. It's a little bit of a lengthy quote, but, but hang with me. It'll be on the screen. He says, There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. 
In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with every other person's pride. In fact, maybe that is even wreaking havoc on your soul right now. You came in and you are so troubled horizontally by somebody that is in this room because of what they're wearing or who they are or how they're getting on your nerves that you can't even think straight. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. And I guess that's a British phrase for being like, like, you know, hashtag awesomeness. In God, he says, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, oh, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. <sighs> Friends, I don't read this as like a, like a pastoral scold. I read this as a confession because I confess that there are vestiges of pride in my heart, and Paul is saying that one of the consequences of the gospel is that who among us can boast? Christ is the reason that you stand before a holy God. It is because Him that you are in Christ Jesus. So then what should become of our boasting? It is nullified. It's excluded. Why? By what kind of law is our boasting excluded? By a law, I think what Paul has in mind here, by a principle of works? No, but by the principle of faith. And even the faith that we have, we can't take credit for because we read in other parts of the Bible, namely Ephesians 2, that even the faith we have is given as a sovereign gift of God. For we hold that one is justified or made right with God, verse 28, by faith. By the gift of God, apart from works of the law. So there it is again, the free grace of the gospel, humbling all mankind, staring us in the face through God's word, demanding that we look up and bow ourselves to a holy God and worship him rightly. We are made right with him by the gift that he gives. The very thing that he demands, he gives. So who among us can stand and say, look what I did at the throne of God? So the gospel excludes pride. And then in verse 29 and 30, we're going to see that there's an implication of this humility. And it's this. Number two, the second truth that we want to apply is that the gospel that excludes pride also, excludes pride also includes outsiders. The gospel includes outsiders. And in verses 29 and 30, I think Paul has particularly in mind the ethnic Jew, his countrymen. And he says to them in verse 29, Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised, meaning the Jew who was 
adhering to the Old Testament law, which was primarily marked off by this, by this particular sign of circumcision by faith. So who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised, meaning all of the Gentiles, through faith? So let's just remind ourselves of what's going on here in the context of the Roman church. Remember when we started out in Romans a few months ago, we said that one of the things that Paul was writing to the Roman church was to quell, was to quiet, to bring peace to some ethnic tension in the Roman church. So Romans was written probably in the late 50s. A.D., early 60s maybe, and what, had, what happened was in the late 40s, the Roman emperor at the time had expelled all of the Jews out of Rome, not only just the, the Jews who were still Jewish by faith, but even the all ethnic Jews, so even the ethnic Jews that had converted to Christianity, everybody that was Jewish was expelled from Rome because the Jews were causing problems and were upset about the uh, they, they were uh, captive to the Roman Empire, and so they were starting to rebel. And as a safeguard against the political unrest, the emperor of Rome expelled all Jews out of Rome. Well, eventually, that, so that meant that all of the Jews that had become Christians that were part of the Roman church also had to leave Rome. Well, that emperor dies in the early 50s, and another emperor comes to power, and the edict of the old emperor sort of faded away, and all of the ethnic Jews and the Jews that were Christians could come back to Rome. And so Paul is writing to a church who had become exclusively Gentile, and now these Jews, Jewish Christians that had not been part of the church for about four or five years are starting to come back, and there was tension between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And Paul is writing to bring not only reconciliation between God and man, as primarily important as that is, but also to bring reconciliation horizontally between Jew and Gentile. And he zeroes in on an Old Testament verse that would have been the absolute height of Jewish existence, Deuteronomy 6.4, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the Jewish mind would have taken great pride in that high point of the Old Testament, that this one God who is the one true God is their God. And it was kind of a, almost like a rallying cry, like a, like a nationalistic cry for the Jewish people. And Paul references that great cry of the Old Testament, that great truth of the Old Testament. And he uses that and applies that to this one God who the Jews in the Old Testament thought was their God, saying, no, that he's the one God of Jew and Gentile. This, to the nationalistic Jew, would have really been a shot across the bow. And Paul says here that God is the God not of Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now people come to God, not by the works of the law and the Old Testament sacrificial system. All of that was a mere shadow pointing to the reality of Christ. Now they come by faith. Now let's just pause and just consider before we move on to the final point, just the obvious, I think, implications for us. This we, we, we've been... Unless you've been hiding under a rock 
for the past few years, you realize that probably, at least in my lifetime, I was born in 1971, and I know some of you that are older that lived through the civil rights era in the 1960s would probably have a different opinion on this. But certainly in my lifetime, I would say that for the most extended period of time, it has been the most difficult time in our country racially. And what has been challenging, I think, for the church is that the church has not really yet gotten its legs underneath it and been able to be a prophetic voice to the culture because, and hear me, and I, again, I don't say this as a scold. I think one of the reasons the church has been not as prophetically effective as we can be to an onlooking world during this time of tumultuous racial relations is because much of the church, much of the white church, is more white than they are Christian. And that has hindered our ability to speak biblically and prophetically and eternally to a culture that takes sides. Now, friends, I know that this discussion is so nuanced. And I know that I will probably get some emails. But I will take your emails and I will invite you to sit down with me face to face and let's talk about how the gospel pushes us beyond political subcultures or ethnic subcultures and pushes us outside of those for the sake of the gospel, because we have the end of the story where we see that Christ has redeemed a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And friends, our skin colors, our food preferences, our languages, our subcultures are mere temporary developments that will one day all fade away. Uh, recently, um, Stephen Knowles and I, he was an intern at the church, now he's away at Bible College in Southeastern uh, Baptist Bible College in North Carolina. We were at a meeting, and um, it was a meeting of some uh, dear brothers in the Lord who I think have very good intentions. And one of the brothers got up and he was talking about an, what he thought was a really like novel discovery in the scriptures. And I don't want to be kind, but I was, I was just frustrated by this perspective. And he, he was sharing with us how that the, a way of doing evangelism is that we should think about the people that we are like, like our affinity groups. And that we should capitalize on people that we have things in common with and that we should focus on engaging those affinity groups with the gospel. So we should leverage our influence with those people. So if you're, you know, a, a young guy that is in his mid-20s and he's single and he likes to run or physical fitness, you should kind of gather all the guys that you do that with and tell them about Jesus. Or if you're a, you know, if you're a, a middle-aged white guy from Southern California and you like the San Diego, now Los Angeles Chargers and... You know, you think that USC football is the greatest program, um, and you like 
you know, soft rock bands from the 80s, you should get together, I'm just hypothetically, a guy like that. Um, you should, you know, kind of leverage that influence that you might have, and I, I actually think I'm the only one of that little subculture, but anyway. Uh, and I, you know, I, I want to say like, yeah, God puts you in places, but I, I wanted to stand up and scream and say, but actually, the opposite is really true. That the beauty of the gospel, what makes the gospel compelling, is not that a bunch of people would be gathered together who otherwise would be together for their little interests, but the gospel is so compelling because people who would never otherwise find themselves in the same room, part of the same family, come together, not because they're white or black or Mexican or Asian or because they like, like dirt bikes or Alabama football or Cajun cooking, but because they love Jesus. Friends, that becomes, that becomes irresistibly compelling to a world that is insecure and needs something greater than their own preferences. And just one final word before we move on. A few, uh, about a month or so ago, several of us from the church, the pastors and a couple guys from the church went to this conference in Atlanta called the Just gospel conference, and it was put on by several uh, African-American pastors that I dearly love and respect, who I just think are just wonderful leaders in the church today. And it was a several-day conference that was talking about how the gospel, in fact, Tony Carter, Pastor Tony Carter from East Point Church in Atlanta, who came and preached here for an adoption event several years ago, uh, just a, a wonderful brother and communicator of God's Word. He was kind of like the point person in putting this together with several other brothers and pastors from around the nation. And they were considering how the gospel uh, pushes us to, to this very thing, to reconcile with one another. And friends, this, by the way, this obviously goes far beyond just racial differences. It goes to just even sub-differences between the same ethnic group, poor people, rich people, people from particular neighborhoods, just that the gospel would supersede all of that. But one of the things that struck me was that it's not enough for us just to acknowledge the problem, especially as the majority culture. But Jesus, Jesus came to us in our weakness. And there's something about that that hit me, that being somebody that is from the majority culture, that there's, there's a, a movement that I need to make, I need to make, as somebody who wants to image and mirror the gospel that Jesus came to me, that I, I look at people that may be different from me in many ways, and, and quite frankly, who I may disagree with on a lot of things. But it's not like Jesus agreed with me on everything before he came to me, right? And there's just something about the gospel that Paul is wanting to press in to his brethren that he loves so much and he is saying to them that God is not the God of Jews only but he's the God of the Gentiles and he will bring all to him not by their law abiding not by their particular cultural preference but by the faith that is in Christ alone 
And friends, obviously we don't have time to get into this, but this has global dimensions, doesn't it? This means that we should not just be a church that is content with an American expression of our gospel, but that we should be, and praise God that we are, a church that is sending people out to other peoples. Do you know this? Do you know that Springer has a covert operation here? You know this, this trip that we're taking to China and this trip that we're taking to Uganda and these trips that we're taking to Kosovo, all these things. Yeah, we want to go there for a week or two and do good work. But do you know what Springer and us, we know what we're really trying to do? We're trying to infect you with a virus, a virus of love for the global work of God. And we want you to do one of three things. We want you to either go and, Lord willing, maybe be called to the nations like several families from this church have as a result of the culture of mission sending in this church. We want you to maybe go be a person that commits to do these trips for the rest of your life or to be somebody that prays, that fuels, that gives so that we would see that God is not the God of America, but he is the God of the nations, the gospel includes the outsider, the Gentile that was separated from God, that has now, as Ephesians 2 says, been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then finally, the gospel empowers obedience. Verse 31, the gospel empowers obedience. Paul anticipating this charge that he is saying that the law has no function at all, says this in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So here's what's happening. As Paul is anticipating the charge from some of his opponents, and he will really get into this in Romans chapter 6 when we get to it in, I don't know, maybe next year sometime. The charge is this theological term called and here's your 25 cent uh, doctrinal theology word for the day, antinomianism, okay? Antinomianism, antinomos, from two Greek words, anti meaning against, nomos meaning law, against the law. And this is a particular mindset, antinomianism, that was a kind of lawlessness, like sinful liberty, right? So it's like the opposite of legalism. On one side, one error that people fall into, and this was something that Paul obviously is combating earlier on, is what we know of as legalism. In other words, thinking that you are right with God by works of the law. In other words, what you do as a Jewish person in the Old Testament, or how we might, might apply it to our own lives. Well, you know, I come to church, I pay my tithes, I work in the nursery, I do my thing. God owes me something, right? That is the theological perspective and heir of legalism. But here, Paul is anticipating the charge that if, well, okay, we get that we're not saved by works of the law, we're saved by faith, but does that mean that the law has no bearing on our lives, nothing to say to us? So Paul now is considering the other side of the ditch that we fall into, antinomianism, or we might call it lawlessness. In other words, well, if I'm saved by faith and not by anything that I do, then I can just live however I want. And Paul is saying, no. Do you see, Paul, it's like, a, it's like the, 
the, the grandfather clock, the thing is swinging. It's like Paul's, no, 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 don't make the air. Oh, but as soon as I correct you, you're going to make it on the other side. And Paul, he, he can barely even get the gospel out of his mouth before he has to run over to the other side of the ditch and correct the air that we can fall off into the other side. And he says, we do not overthrow this law. By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. The gospel answers both errors. We are not saved by works of the law. We're saved by faith. But because we're saved by faith, this doesn't mean that the law of God, the whole Old Testament, has no role in the life of a believer. So I thought about reading a bunch of passages from Leviticus to end this message and showing you how they actually apply to the life of a Christian. You'll be excited that I decided not to do that because I want you to hear these baptisms testimonies, and I want you to be awake. But when you read through Leviticus, as you should, yeah, you might not make a t-shirt or a coffee cup out of a lot of verses in Leviticus, but you can see Christ and the role that those verses have in the life of a Christian. And so Leviticus is full of cleanliness laws, Laws about how the priests and the people were to purify themselves before they could approach God. Friends, the New Testament believer should not look at Leviticus and say, wow, that's strange. God was sort of particular and OCD and cranky. Thank goodness we live now in a time of grace by faith in Christ. As long as I got Jesus, I'm okay. No, friends, that's not the application of Leviticus. We read in the Old Testament law, much of it giving, given to us in Leviticus, we get this picture of the holiness of God. And all of these temporary shadows of sacrifices and cleanliness laws are meant to lift our eyes and point us to Jesus. And every time we read about all of the particularities of these Old Testament laws, we should see that and, and re, uh, worship afresh that Jesus has fulfilled it all for us. God is no less holy. His standard is no lower than it was then, but Jesus has fulfilled it for us. And so when we see that, we should take great joy that we have a high priest who has accomplished us this for us. And then we should see that now Jesus gives us his righteousness, gives us a new heart, so that while we don't have to do that sacrifice or that cleanliness or that food regulation to, to the letter, it can point us to a life of obedience by the Spirit that God leads us into. Listen to what Paul says later on in Romans, a few verses, and then we will be done. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin, of, sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus 
obeyed the law perfectly for us, to be an example, to be a representative, to be a substitute for us. And his obedience, friends, his obedience is given to us. Now this Old Testament law is now fulfilled in us, but not so that we can just live however we want, so that we too would walk the end of verse 4, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And Robert read for us at the beginning from Matthew 22 that gives us the whole point of all this, that all of this law and all of the prophets in the Old Testament, all of it can be summed up as we live in love for one another. This law has a purpose, and it's meant to point us to the heart of God in obedience that we can now do because God has made us alive. Uh, Friends, the gospel crushes pride. The gospel includes outsiders, and the gospel empowers our obedience. Are, are um, Are you like me? Are you prone to pride and frustration. May the Spirit of God humble you today. Are you somebody that, yes, you're trusting in Jesus, but by default, you still maybe are more passionately concerned with the things of your temporary ethnic or political subgroup than you are the Great Commission and the gospel that includes people not like you. Oh, may the Spirit of God humble you. Are you a believer that has been so attracted to the free grace of God, but you have you veered over into the other side of the ditch and you confess Jesus with your mouth, but you're living however you want and you act as if obedience is only something that Jesus had to do for you to save you, which you're right, but he obeyed so that you might come alive so that now you too, after you have been justified, can glorify God by your ever-increasing obedience to him. Are you a person that has so negatively reacted to the legalism of your youth that you've fallen off into the ditch of lawlessness? Oh, that the Spirit of God would bring you, would bring us back to that middle, beautiful gospel road that empowers the pursuit of Christ-likeness. And friends, who among us can do this on our own? We need each other. We need to be all up in each other's bidness. Because there's no other way we can do this alone. And friends, that, I mean, that's hard. I mean, come on, man. We are master masqueraders, are we not? We're master ma- masqueraders. I, I am. I, I know I am. Oh, that the Spirit of God would crush our pride, would crush our little sub-identifiers, and would give us a hunger for true obedience, which actually brings true joy, all for the glory of his name. Let's revel now in the gospel as we see three lovely young ladies from this church proclaim the good news of the gospel
through their baptism. Let me pray. Father, may Paul's concluding words in Romans 3 stir our hearts. May it make us people that do not look down on others, but look humbly up to you. Lord, we are white and black and Asian and Hispanic, and all of these things are beautiful expressions of the diversity of humanity. But Lord, may we not be identified primarily by any of these things. In fact, may we, may we not identify ourselves as a white Christian or a black Christian or an Asian Christian or any type of other Christian because then the greatest thing about us is that thing that comes before the great word. May we just be a Christian who happens to be white, a Christian who happens to be black or Asian or from this or that or any other myriad of subgroups. And may we long for that day when all of these things will fall to the side and people from every tribe and tongue will be around your throne. None of us will have any boast in ourselves, but our boast will be in Jesus. And may that day come And until that day, may we, with just grace-filled honesty, reason to do life together because we need each other's help to obey. Lord, life is too hard. The devil is too powerful. Our flesh is too strong. We need each other. And as an act of your grace, you give us each other. We're deep in our our love for one another all for the glory of your name and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, friends, let's all stand together as the team comes back and leads us in a song. And as you, if you are being baptized, you can go prepare to be baptized. As these young ladies are baptized, it is more than appropriate for you. This is not the 18th hole at Augusta. You do not have to be quiet. We're celebrating the glory of the gospel. So it's, it's more than appropriate for you to praise God as you see these ladies be baptized and hear their testimonies read. Let's respond to Jesus together. Lift our voices, sing this together. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In
This is the testimony of God's grace in the life of Haley Floyd. I grew up in a Christian home and attended church every Sunday. But as I entered high school, I began to conform to the patterns of this world and only went to church because my parents expected me to. I had no desire for God. I began abusing drugs and alcohol, often driving under the influence and also getting fired from my first job for stealing money to pay for even more. My friends and I would use whatever we could get our hands on and sometimes did not even know what we would take. In college, I couldn't even recognize myself. 
the drugs and alcohol now paired with promiscuity had clouded who I was. In addition, in the fall of 2014, I was diagnosed with clinical anxiety and depression. But then in the summer of 2015, at 21 years old, I found Christ, or he found me. I woke up one Sunday morning hungover and checked my phone for the time, but could only see the day, Sunday. I broke down crying over how I now spent Sunday mornings and thought I was unworthy of God's love or forgiveness. I was a broken person, but Jesus in his grace reminded me of the promise I'd heard as a child that he loves unconditionally, and it's because of his sacrifice on the cross, not anything I could ever say or do, that I am forgiven and freed through true repentance and faith. It was like I could hear him say, I don't care how far you've ran, just come home, come as you are. In that moment, I decided to follow Christ. I lost my boyfriend and all my friends and had never felt more alone. But God didn't just save me from my destructive life. He gave me a new community. He sent me my best friend, Danielle, an amazing woman to disciple me named Amelia, and other believers who have encouraged me to follow Christ. All the things I left behind and the old self I chose to abandon are nothing compared to the glory of truly knowing Christ. I still battle with clinical anxiety and depression every single day, and most days even just waking up is difficult for me. But on those days, I cling to Jesus even harder. Yes, I still sin and make mistakes, but God in his grace is helping me to see more and more how despicable my sin is. Not long after coming to faith, I gave in to the temptation of my old sinful desires, and I found myself in an adulterous relationship. At first, I didn't feel remorseful at all, but over time, I became increasingly convicted by my sin. It broke my heart realizing that I was breaking God's. Now knowing Christ makes my sin heart-shattering. The Lord brought me to a place where instead of hiding my sin, I openly confronted it, bringing it to the attention of those who needed to know and turning from the sin that had my heart so callous. Not only that, but I also have sisters and brothers in Christ who hold me accountable to honor Jesus with my life, and consequently, my relationship with Christ has soared. I now want to obey him, not from obligation, but from joy. I am being baptized today as a public profession of faith and redemption from my own life. It's a miracle I'm standing here today and not in jail or dead. It is all because of Jesus I am alive, and it's all because of Jesus I choose to truly live for him. Amen. Haley, because of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ and your trust in his gospel, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is a testimony of God's grace in the life of Nola Preston. I was raised in a family that attended church every Sunday. Because my mother was the granddaughter of a pastor, missing church was never an option. 
I never thought of Christianity as a personal relationship with the Lord, but rather as an obligation. My family taught me that if I did A, B, and C and didn't do X, Y, and Z, then God would love me. I could never live up to these rules, and I felt further away from God the more I tried. Without a love for God or knowledge of the depths of what he had done for me, I had no reason to fight sin. My senior year of college, my friends Jackie and Leah invited me to attend a student-led Bible study at CSU School of Music. I remember how happy they all looked to study the Bible at 10 o'clock on a busy school night. It was so strange, a bunch of young people excited to talk about Jesus. They seemed to genuinely love the Lord. Whatever these people had, I wanted it. I began to pray all the time, simple prayers like, Jesus, please show me who you are. Teach me whatever it is these people see in you. A few days later, I rushed to Walmart and, be- and picked up the first Bible I saw. The more I prayed and read God's word, the more the Lord revealed himself to me. My heart had changed completely. I no longer saw God as a person that hated every decision I made. The teachings I learned before were not of truth. God is loving and gracious, and he loves me not because of anything I have done, but he loves me just because he does. Scriptures teach me this, and I believe it with my whole heart. Even though I still struggle with sin, it is much easier to take God's side against my sin because I know the magnitude of his work on the cross. I am so thankful for God's grace to give me the faith to believe. I am so eager every day to share this news with my friends and family who do not yet know the truth. My knowledge of God's grace and love for me shows me how to love and treat other people. Matthew 10:39 says, If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. By the grace of God, he has unchained me from the weight of my sins and has given me true life and true freedom. Nola, because of your trust in Christ and his righteousness, his righteousness and not your own, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a testimony of God's grace in the life of Danielle Montez. I have always longed to know God. Even as a child, I prayed as if I knew God heard me. Growing older, I did my best to be a good person and tried to avoid anything that I thought would disappoint him. In high school, I attended church regularly by myself, sometimes two or even three times a week, and it was nine years ago that I began reading the Bible daily. At 17 years old, I met a man who I thought was the love of my life, and we later got married. For six years, everything was peaceful and full of happiness. But then my husband lost his way, and suddenly my life was filled with more pain and sorrow than I had ever known. In the end, I had no choice but to leave the life I'd loved 
and envision for myself. Ultimately losing my husband, my home, and any money I had. But worst of all was the silence. It was as if God had abandoned me. As my most significant earthly relationship fell apart, I struggled severely to overcome this test of my faith. And on my worst days, the days where I couldn't see past the darkness, I thought that ending my own life was the way out, the only way out. But it was at my absolute lowest moment that I realized that Jesus had died for me. So in turn, I would live for him. I had always known this truth, but had never really considered its implications until I was in despair like this. No matter how close I felt to God or how good I'd been, there was nothing I could do on my own to be right with him. I desperately needed God to draw near to me himself, and in Christ he has. Jesus paid the price for my sin, which separated me from God. Not only that, but he knew the pain and brokenness I was experiencing. He'd been betrayed by one friend, abandoned by the rest, and even forsaken by his father. He wasn't apathetic toward my pain. To the contrary, he had experienced more of that kind of brokenness than I ever will. Since then, my sense of God's presence is on more solid ground, the ground of faith in Christ alone. So I learned to fight for the good days. I learned to have faith in God's plan, no matter what that meant for me. I learned that it is easy to trust him in the light, as I had for so many years, but that faith is refined in the dark. I learned that you may lose everything, your home, your love, yourself, but that God is still God, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Although life and circumstances may test you, the Lord gives us a reason to have stronger faith. It is because of all of this that I want to be baptized here today as a fresh start built on the solid foundation of Christ and Christ alone. Amen. Daniel, because of your faith in Jesus and in his gospel, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, let's all stand. Words to be on the screen, forgive us, but just seeing these testimonies, it, it kind of like just, it's a, it's a means of grace that God uses for me just to remind me that um, I once was lost, far from him, and he saved me, and all we have is Christ. So let's, let's sing this this morning. I once was lost in darkest night, thought I knew 